Oh, we still, all did it at the same still time. It's the problem that my clap makes no noise. It does. Like my you, Nina, you my, don't my hear dog it. has no nose. My clap has no it noise. It does have it. <laughs> but is it like I lost my sense of smell and then I lost my sense of clap? Because I can't hear it anymore. <laughs> it's a new COVID symptom. <laughs> Right, what are we talking about tonight, folks? Punctuation, yes. Well, I'm really, I'm really fond of semicolons myself. <laughs> Did you go to John uh, Berry's talk on punctuation then? No, I really wish I had, actually. Yes, my, I did. My favourite punctuation mark is the Interrobang, and I was really <laughs> upset that they didn't put me in Interrobang. It's like not getting oh. into Gryffindor. I don't even know what house I was in. I never found out how no. to do anything about it. I never found out how to download a sticker or a ribbon or whatever. I don't think I even found my badge. I had a look. No. It wasn't that easy, but if I say that, I'll be killed by us. <laughs> <laughs> Why did she patiently explain to you 17 no. times how to no, do it? No, no, she just told me 84,000 million times how easy Discord was <laughs> and how stupid I was. So you know, she didn't. She didn't do the second part, but it was a bit. It was a bit implicit. How remiss of her. <laughs> I think she was. No, I found, to be... uh, I think all of us agreed that Discord is not great as a you know coming into it cold so to speak but even after doing a bit of um the tutorials on it didn't help i kind of warm God, I, um, I, I found out how to friend people how to send a message to somebody and uh that was i've got it. two friends you know let's see if you can guess who my two friends are claire no. claire of croydon <laughs> one is very obvious <laughs> and one you won't guess uh, yeah one is dark and the other, you no. can carry on guessing random people. Leonard. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Spike. No. Spike. Do you give in? <laughs> no. No, this is the most fun I've had all day. <laughs> What's this a small piece of putty you found in your ear? <laughs> is it that palm tree behind me in my virtual background? <laughs> no. All right, no, tell us. It's then. Mark Meenan. Good Whoa. God. Oh, he's trying to friend me as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I pointedly ignored him. Oops. Well, oddly enough, he was one of my friends. So you could have guessed <laughs> that. that. <laughs> I could have too, but I'd forgotten. Lillian, did you watch any programme item at punctuation in real time? No, only the one we were on. Yeah. And I wouldn't have watched because... that if I'd been giving you the <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I watched three things in real time Ooh. and only watched half of Tell one of them. Tell us more. But, but um, well, I started watching the... The one that I started watching and then watched offline was Heidi's talk about the science of woo which just seemed to, to be a bit slow at the time that I was watching it live, but it, it was fine, you know, and I eventually saw it. Uh, and I saw the John D. Berry one, and I watched a bit of... Oh, I can't even remember what the panel discussion was, but a panel discussion, <laughs> science fiction. It was about books. Yvonne was interested. Was it the one where they were recommending a book nobody had heard of? That's the one. Oh, yes. I wanted to be. I actually sent in a suggestion for that one, but I think oh, yeah. that was 
the, that was one of the few times I did try and engage with it and kind of battled with Discord to try and get the link to find out where it was because I think mm. I wasn't logged into the program or something. I yeah. don't know. But anyway, I couldn't seem to get there. I did tell John Coxon um, to tell Hispania because I think she yeah, was running. Yeah, she was. I, had, I just thought I had a good suggestion. Has anyone heard of the green gene? No, what is it? It's, it just seemed opposite. It, it's an early, well, actually, it's probably a late novel by Peter Dickinson, oh, wow. who wrote The Changes, um, which, which again, is pretty obscure now, but people of our generation will remember The Changes, the trilogy about the, the world where King Arthur has risen and, like, stopped all the machines working. So it's kind of this medieval England, and people are, can, like, make the weather and things like that. And it's really good. Anyway, because I liked it so much, I sort of followed up Peter Dickinson and got hold of this novel called The Green Gene, which is obviously written at the time of the kind of height of the troubles in Northern Ireland. And the idea is that there are terrorists for the, the Irish people because the Irish are green. <laughs> there is a Celtic <laughs> gene that makes you green, which wasn't meant... And it's actually quite a, a heavy novel for a kind of mm. YA-ish novel. I mean, there is torture and, you know, terrorism and explosions. Is there a, um, but I, is there so, um, genetic engineering or...? I don't think it's, so, and I wouldn't say it was a utopia, so sorry. <laughs> oh, I don't... It is, a, it is a dystopia. Yeah. It sounds very dystopian. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's just, I mean, it's a kind of a bit of a Betty Sue or whatever the phrase is, you know, it's a MacGuffin. It's just this idea that it's sort of giving, I don't know, a visible reason to discriminate against Irish people, I think. It just happened. I don't know. No one really explains mm. it. So the Irish people are genetically different from the other people in the story yeah. on, on a visible level. Have they got green skin? Yeah, they've, they've become green. They've, they've, become they've green, literally yeah. become green. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's metaphor. It's a really nice yeah. high concept idea. No, that yeah. sounds good. <laughs> I will follow it yeah, up. Yeah, I remember really enjoying it. And I don't think anyone but me has ever heard of it. But I could be wrong. The reason I didn't go to that was because I thought I had to bring a book with me that I could recommend as being the obscure book. Mm. And then in case a Spaniard called on me, because that was a write-up, so I didn't go. Mm. And then it wasn't something that was replayed over catch-ups. So I rather regretted not going when I found out you didn't have to actually bring an obscure book with you. Mm. You could just go along and be there. Yeah. The other thing that, uh, well, the thing that I spent more time on was um, in little discussion rooms and just coming across random people and having a chat either text-wise or... So was that on Discord you person. went into little rooms? Uh, some, on Discord, yeah. yes. Where is, sorry, I yet again can't think of anything worse to do with a weekend. I'm sorry. I mean, it's bad enough talking to people on Zoom. And the idea of spending a weekend talking to people on text is... Well, there wasn't much talking with on text. It was more a case of finding out that somebody was there and was interested in a chat. And then you find a... You say, well, I'll see you in the bar. Ah. Which is the Zoom One of the room. seven or eight rooms. So, um, but it, what I was trying to do was to to spend my time the way I would at a convention so I wouldn't be at I wouldn't be at the program very much I would only go to the few items that seemed to have a good write up and uh, I'd spend the rest of the time talking to people I don't get a chance to talk to most of the time 
but it it wasn't really great for that. Maybe because not everybody else has yet got the hang of that's the way you could do this sort of serendipity. I think, I think it's just, I, yeah, I think I just didn't have my normal support group. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know. Well, I think it just is a completely different thing. I mean, you know, I sorry, I'm sorry, Alison. You know, I love you, but I think. The enthusiasm, I didn't realise how unenthusiastic I was about an online convention until I got there, or didn't, I must admit. Um, it just isn't the same thing, I don't mm. know, and I can't I can't create that by, by having a drink either. I mean, I, I don't mind Zoom parties. So this is my suggestion for EasterCon that I've tried to trail past a few people, which is they should have a party membership. I'm quite happy to pay five or ten pounds to go to evening parties and see people I wouldn't, you know, just think of organising a Zoom with, like maybe people in Australia or something. Like, it was really nice to see Ronan Ozanski, right? And he's mm. he's not really, like, good mate of mine, you know? And whenever someone turns up who I do like, but again, wouldn't organise a party with, like, Jerry, maybe, or even Juliet, you know, I go, oh, Jerry, Juliet, you know, and it's nice. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So it's worth, that's worth it to me. But yeah. I have just no desire whatsoever to sit in panels during the day. Okay. Whereas I've got the opposite feeling about it all, which is that I'm increasingly finding it's pointless to just run into people in a Zoom room and say, hi, Roma, it's great to see you, or Julia or whoever, because it's very hard to get into a situation where you can have a reasonably um, interesting conversation when you're in a room full of maybe eight, ten people who are all kind of communicating. But it's very hard to do the one-to-one -one thing or one-to-three thing. Yes, you can't, you can't turn to face a particular mm -hmm. person to, to say, oh, that was interesting, you could tell me a bit more about that and let the others get on with a more general conversation. And it may be um, a failure in so, me, but I just, can't, I just can't do that in the rooms. I can't manage to have that yeah. kind of conversation. So I then end up sitting in a room with people I really like, but feeling I'm not communicating with them and therefore feeling like my friendship mm. is, is kind of <laughs> failing. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think it's a failure in you, Christina. I just think it's what different conversational styles and desires because actually mm. what I've missed in lockdown tremendously is being in a large group of people sort of throwing the breeze around. I've had quite a lot of decent conversations with people one-to-one -one or maybe one-to-two, three, whatever. Um, you know, and that's great. But, you know, as a single person, right, most of the time it's been legal for me maybe to meet one person for coffee or one person for lunch, which I've done quite a lot. And what I long for is the lack of responsibility of being in a big group where I don't have to be the one who's responsible for sort of keeping things going, you know. Um, and so I quite like big Zoom rooms, but that's because I'm an extrovert and I don't mind breaking in and probably talking over people and being annoying, right? So it's just all to do with your different style of talking. Yeah, I think that's very true. And what did work for me in some of the Zoom parties a bit more was like when I was doing the cheese tasting, um that seemed to work because you had something that was holding you together, something mm. that you were actually there yeah. for. And to an extent, it worked with wine tasting. But when we got in a big room of wine tasting and most people weren't tasting wine, then it worked less well. 
Robert. What I really liked, and I know this isn't new to punctuation, but it didn't seem to happen at the Futuricon, was that I could watch things on catch-up. And, and ah. yes. compared to real convention, that's a great benefit because... One, you can, if there's a buzz about something, you can go back and watch it. If there's no buzz, you don't mm-hmm. need to bother. Two, as Ian says, if a if an item's quite slow, then if you're watching it on catch-up, you can kind of do a bit of fast-forwarding, see if you can find yeah. the good bits and so forth. And if an, if an item's really, really bad, you just don't have to watch it and nobody will know that yeah. you've disappeared from the item. But... But I don't know if I don't know if Lillian has, has taken advantage of this either at science fiction conventions or uh, at legal ones. But uh, I was very impressed at the Corflues where Sandra Bond would stay in her bedroom yeah. and watch the feed that was being broadcast rather than actually attend the program. <laughs> oh but would send send down That's comments right, yeah. via the. She the does link. seem to be enjoying Discord. She's probably reliving Corflu. But where this approach um, kind of fell down was when I was watching an item, one of the items on Catch Up, and it was Small Fun Cons, and they were talking about stuff and about conventions and so forth. And it just got to the point where I really wanted to be able to join in and say, no, that wasn't that. That's not a small fun con, et cetera. (laughs) And so you realise actually the point is you should be at the items because then you can join in even on Discord or from your bedroom. So... But you can't can't in real life, so there is some truth to it. I mean, I was going to say that... I think the idea of having catch-up works much better for me if I'd been at a real convention, you know, where I could have gone to it in real life but didn't because I was hungover or tired or didn't get up or went shopping or something. Um, Because then you really do get buzz from people about things that were good and you missed, whereas was there really a buzz about any particular Yeah, the John John D. Berry punctuation talk, which I missed because I was doing something else in real life... Um, yeah, I was very pleased to be able to watch that. Then Robin of Sherwood, I heard some good stuff on that, so I watched that. Um, they were probably the only two I actually watched because of Buzz. But I watched the one I would have been on um, if I hadn't come off it for the reason I was going to discuss. Okay, carry on. About my, my objection <laughs> to the catch-up programming. It's not exactly my objection. I don't feel that strongly about it, but it is sort of almost interesting in an octothorpy kind of way which is um, I was meant to be on, I can't even remember because there were two that were quite similar. You know, one was staying sane in the apocalypse and the other one was like, I don't know, doing things in the apocalypse. I can't remember. There were two that were a bit like that. And I had volunteered for one of them. And then I got asked if I minded it being streamed to YouTube where it would be up publicly for two weeks Um, with the understanding that the... URL to it would only be distributed to the people at the convention, which I guess is good enough for most people. But it had your name on it, right? So if I'd used my whole name, which is fairly Googleable actually, then you would have been able to find me quite easily. And I have been in that position professionally of having of being found out as being an SF fan and being, you know, pilloried for it in the register um, back in the days of the copyright wars. So I'm just a tiny bit you know 
sensitive about that now. I'm not in a, not in a Clara Croydon level, but just a bit. And it, it is an interesting point to me that there clearly is a difference between the way people see as optimised for science fiction conventions and the way that I see as optimised for a small private con, which is really what I saw this as. You know, I mean, I don't know how many people were at it, but I would assume it was maybe under 100. I think maybe I slightly more. It was okay. 200 was really? the number that uh, were registered but in some way. how many actually turned out? Cause, well, know, at any one time, quid. there wouldn't be 200, but Alison at one stage quoted 200. OK, so the vibe to me, maybe wrongly, was of something really quite small, like cold flu or something, you know, where you can behave in a sort of silly way and it's not very public. It's not like Worldcon or even Eastercon. Um and I didn't understand, and I don't understand, two things really, actually. I don't understand the emphasis on Discord, because it seems to me you could have done most of this with a Zoom bar and Zoom events, you know, and people talking in the chat to the Zoom, which is how 100% of all the webinars and so forth that I've done over the last 10 months have been done. You know, we haven't had this extra thing, right, which just seems to create problems, really. And the second point was the idea of streaming it to YouTube so it can be catch up for the next two weeks is de facto making it public for anyone who wants to spend the time looking for names, right? Which is not necessarily what you want. And I don't understand why they didn't, for example, record it on Zoom and then put the Zooms on a website. You know, I sort of said, why didn't you put, why couldn't you put the Zooms on Discord? And I was told that you can't put um, recordings that long on Discord. So that's fair enough. But I, or else, because I did ask around, I did actually try and find out. It is quite possible to have a private password protected channel on YouTube. Um, if you just get everyone to sign up to have a YouTube account, which is much less effort than having a Discord for example, you know, so it doesn't seem so unreasonable. So I'm not saying they should have done it my way. I'm just saying it was interesting to me that it seemed a really different mindset. I don't know. It seemed to also involve an awful lot of different systems when the idea was to cut down the number of systems. Like then you've got YouTube, Discord and Zoom when you could just have had Zoom. Mm. But they also had something else. Um, Streaming Yes. Well, that uh, was what uh, was casting. I've never, I've never even heard of that. It, it only functions, I think, to it's casting. I think it's right. casting the stream to YouTube. But yeah, right. it confused me, and also signing up with WordPress can confuse me. And I'm a fairly adept user. I mean, so I have spent ten months doing a lot of this. You know, not not in a fanish context, mm. and it did seem unnecessarily overcomplicated to me. So I'm just sort of curious why we've come to different solutions. You know. I mean, I did try and talk to Alison about it and she ended up just sort of saying, well, you know, there's all these different ways of doing it and this is the way we chose to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's because other conventions have done Fair it enough. that way because it's been big yeah. in the games community. So. But actually, I was beginning to come around to the Discord this time. It wasn't being interfering. It was an easy way to catch up on things. I even did, I did the Not Park Run, which involved a call on, a voice call on Discord where if I was the sort of person that went out running in headphones, I could have gone out running with the sound of someone's (laughs) someone's treadmill in my ear. (laughs) No, but I did the kind of uh, talking beforehand, and then we all posted up our run on it afterwards and things like that. So 
and and also things like the cheese channel before the cheese tasting that was quite a fun place and people sharing pictures from their cookery books and so forth so if I'd got mm. got my act together I'd have probably joined in more of that kind of conversation yeah I'd, I'd forgotten about the posting pictures because there, there were some interesting conversations that started from me seeing somebody posting a picture like Karen Schaffer posted a picture of of wine or was it cheese or both and uh, uh, what I took from that was uh, what I took from that was that her uh, uh, oh you've finally finished the kitchen (laughs) renovation tell us more about it and we ended up getting a video tour of it at at one stage Again, again, this is a bit like your conversational styles. I mean, my convention Mm. style for many years, maybe not soon, right, has been to be really, really busy at work and arrive exhausted, drink a lot and run into people and talk to them and perhaps go to the items that I've been put on because I will volunteer for programme because it involves me in the convention. Um, And you get a free drink. (laughs) And you get a free drink. But I can't actually (laughs) afford to buy a drink these days. Um, and I suppose I had a similar attitude to punctuation, which was I was arriving a bit wiped out from having had a very busy couple of weeks. And I, if I, you know, I probably, I did in fact look at the cheese uh, strand and I looked at the wine strand and I liked the wine strand. I liked us all talking about our ABC wines. That was fun. I enjoyed that. Probably enjoyed that more than anything else. Um, but mostly I don't need that. That isn't my idea of a convention. I can talk to people on Twitter. I can talk to people on WhatsApp. I can talk to people on Signal. I don't need extra text conversations as part of my convention. Whereas I suppose, it's to me, it's a bit like what you say about the Zoom room. It's, it's a chance to have a conversation with people that... I mean, I don't do a lot of Twitter. I do a bit of Facebook, but maybe some people that I don't see on these media because mm. they're not in my bubble of people, but they are in my convention bubble. <laughs> But it, that just makes me wonder. I mean, sorry, I'm not really not meant to be aggressive, but why you don't talk to them on Facebook? Because you can do that all year round. Because there's a time and a place, and you've got some some commonality of what you're talking about. So, okay, there might be a cheese conversation on Facebook, and it probably disappear within a few hours. Um, by the time I've I've had a Facebook alert about it, it will have stopped happening for about uh, over 24 <laughs> hours and it seems a bit pointless. Whereas on mm. Discord, the cheese thing happened over several days, but fairly slowly. And as you know, I am a slow conversation person and you are a fast <laughs> one. So Yeah, I guess that's what I didn't so like about I think, it. Though I do think actually you misjudge Facebook slightly these days. I mean, it seems to be a matter of what the algorithm does, but... Various conversations, often involving Margaret Austin for some reason, do seem to come back over a long period of time. Yes, but I suppose there's not an incentive to really join them. When you're at a convention and you're going to go to an event, then you've got more incentive to be part of it than I have from random conversations on Facebook that I kind of scroll into and I'm in the middle of doing something. I do sometimes join them if they're talking about something that I'm actually interested in or have something to say on but most of the time I just read them like them whatever and move on see I don't get that at all when I read something interesting on Facebook I I want to express my opinion much more than I do to say well I've got this interesting cheese I mean I quite like the cheese conversation because I like cheese but it doesn't particularly make me want to you know get my end in (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think I, I am, as as you, as I was trying to explain, a sort of more reflective 
person who doesn't like to jump into a conversation, particularly not on Facebook, without thinking through what I'm saying, because there's quite likely to be people who are out there who might violently disagree with me, or more likely, I've just said something really stupid. So I've always got that consciousness that I'm setting myself up if I say something and join in, get stuck into a discussion on Facebook, particularly if it's people, lots of people in the discussion I don't really know. It sounds to me like what we need to do is start having different types of conventions instead of sort of uh, literary versus media or whatever we have slow conversation <laughs> versus badinage conventions well, I was actually thinking we need to have conventions that involve more children <laughs> yeah well yeah. yeah and more wine that does that does seem to be you know the thing people want and I agree I'm quite mm. happy to sit around being slow while drinking wine and eating cheese <laughs> <laughs> I am very sad I miss the cheese tasting I really am it was just like real life I tuned in just at the start of it and saw Ange sort of setting things up and various people popping in and unwrapping (laughs) cheeses and stuff (laughs) do you know it was like an unboxing video yes you know before before any this was a few minutes before it officially started and I thought no that's fantastic. I mean, as, as everyone speaking to the audience here, because you've got to leave this bit in. Has everyone seen the videos that are now famous of people unboxing usually Apple products? No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, many, they, many they take times. them out and they lay them out and they go like, ah, reaction shot. We did one in Washington DC when um, Jeff, that I was a work person, that me and Michael were out with, bought a, a cheap. Uh, MacBook, and we did an unboxing video. <laughs> it was <laughs> hilarious. Uh, and this is a cheese unboxing video. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> Probably intentionally, but unfortunately, I couldn't get in the cheese room in time to see all that because there was a queue. No. <laughs> there really was a queue outside the cheese room. Really? Yeah, I couldn't get in till maybe five, ten minutes mm. after the start, and it wasn't just me. With people on Discord saying yeah. I can't get in, so that reassured yeah. me. <laughs> The only point of having a virtual convention was that you didn't have to queue outside. <laughs> <laughs> All technology yeah. has limits. And everybody so. wants to go to the cheese tastings. I think they all piled in at once. Oh, yeah. And perhaps it hasn't mm. quite why, been... why is there a queue? I mean, what's the queue for? The queue is to let you in. To be let into the room. <laughs> oh, because of the stupid waiting room. I guess. Right. I guess. Yeah. I hate waiting rooms. I really hate waiting rooms. Having just come off a seminar with a waiting room, you don't have to have a waiting room, you know. I'll pass this on as a free piece of advice. Mm. You can just lock the room while your speakers are setting up and then you unlock it and everyone sweeps in like Niagara Falls. Mm. That's what we just did with the one I just did. Yeah. I was aware of that. There and I don't do any Zoom. There you go. Just from reading I'm only the instructions. Aware Michael told me how. <laughs> no. But it does work very nicely. And also, you can set it so they're all muted on entry. So I now know everything. Mm. You could run your own convention. <laughs> Little con. I have, I have run quite a few conferences. That's true. <laughs> Mm. I I gotta say that is what interests me is that I seem to have acquired quite a different idea of what makes these things work than 
some of the punctuation people. I'm, I'm getting a bad feeling about this. I get the feeling that Lillian's about to say, we could run a convention no, really and not. show them how it should be done. <laughs> We're not going to take competition and rivalry that far. <laughs> no, <laughs> not really to the not. level of self-harm. Come on. <laughs> no, no. I want, I want a vaccine and never to do Zoom again. That's what I want. Claire from Croydon sent us some errata pertaining to the last episode, and these can be found in the liner notes for this episode. Not to be outdone, one of the Octothorpe podcasts sent us a voicemail. Hi, this is Alison Scott, and I thought I would give you a voicemail of comment on This Never Happens 6. I had lots to say about it, though. I really enjoyed the episode. Um, So this is like a letter of comment, except it's a voicemail. I was very interested in the discussion about Google Translate and the possibility that Google might have an interim language structure. So that when you do something, it puts your language into its interim language structure and then goes from there to everywhere else. Because I wonder if that could be a language that we could all learn and then end up with the common tongue that appears in all of those science fiction novels. Everyone's speaking common tongue rather than using Google Translate. It seems quite strange that the common tongue didn't develop, but that magic devices that translate everything clearly will. Um, We have Babelfish. It's very weird. Alison also confirmed and refuted some of the points we made about the musical Hamilton. Hamilton. It's not that people have seen Hamilton before, so they haven't seen the staging, but the soundtrack was released as an album legitimately, which is very normal for for Broadway shows. The show is released. They're very cautious about releasing more than some quite small amounts of footage from shows. They do release the soundtrack. And in the case of Hamilton, because it's a song through musical, they release the entire soundtrack from the show apart from one short scene. So the people that you see when you go to watch Hamilton, they know the entire show. They know everything about it, apart from the staging, which comes as a surprise to them in some cases, and that one small scene. So there are bootlegs, but it's not mostly because people have seen the bootleg. And obviously there are people who have seen the show before. Another thing on Hamilton, which is that Hamilton does not have colourblind casting. Um, I think it's very important. Colourblind casting is where you audition people and their colour is or other characteristics are not relevant to the decision. You, you cast based on what the part requires of the person's skills and abilities without regard to their ethnic background. That's not the case for Hamilton. It's a mixed cast, but the major characters are all people of colour. There are a couple of minor characters that are or nearly always played by a white member of the ensemble. And, and of course, King George is white because Miranda was deliberately drawing this parallel between the revolutionaries and... And rappers, that parallel may or may not be valid. The other thing about Hamilton is that, yes, he draws from past songs. Um, he draws from much more rap than I realised when I first saw the show. But he also, Miranda clearly knew an enormous amount about musical theatre and almost every trope of musical theatre and opera turns up in there somewhere. It's an extremely aggressive and clever magpie-like use of every previous bit of music that Miranda had available to him. Like me, Alison also found the waterfall fights in Black Panther a trifle odd. 
I think I probably said this in Octothorpe, so you might have heard it already. I was confused in Black Panther because I could not understand why this culture staged so many fights in waterfalls. It felt like a bad idea. And my daughter turned to me witheringly and said, because it makes them wet, Mum, which I think is probably true on so many levels. I'm just wondering if the fights in Dune might lead to a comment... But it makes them dry, Mum. We mentioned last time that we might want to talk about Jean Gamow's uh, TAF trip report, the TAF Forensic Report, a cold case investigation, 1987, which is all about Jean Gamow's trip to the UK in 1987, uh, mainly for the conspiracy Worldcon, but also to visit various fans in the UK. So I think we've all all three of us read it now, have we? Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> that was a yes from Lillian yes. as well. It was a, a, good <laughs> trip down, a good trip down memory lane. Is that your, your um, main take on it, Ian? <laughs> no, no, it was just, uh, uh, to me, the, I mean, the writing was really good and, as you say, forensic uh, because she'd kept all the notes and, uh, as she says, she even recorded cassettes of as she was going along streets and things. So there was a lot of detail, but to me it was the photographs that were just fantastic, just seeing, you know, the the people that we used to see on a regular basis at conventions that we no longer do. Well, like Greg Pickersguild. <laughs> yeah, particularly I mean, him, yes. The Greg Pickersguild domination of it is kind of remarkable. <laughs> um, I mean, I must say that. Um, there are quite a lot of places where Jean hypothesises about Britain and British fans, and really she's hypothesising about Greg Pickers' kill most of the time. And this began to seem um, strange to me, I have to say. I mean, I was hanging out in London with Greg Pickers' kill during this time, so I'm not... Um, I'm not a disinterested party. I thought what was remarkable for me was... Um on that subject was not the dominance of Greg, which I can kind of understand, but the fact that at that point I really wasn't involved with any of it at all. So I was not in the Taft trip report. And I don't think to any great extent you were, Lillian, which I would have expected. No, I wasn't, but that was because because, um, Greg had fallen out with me. I suppose my interpretation of that was that I wasn't so involved with um, American fandom at that point and hadn't really decided we were running for TAF. And I was far more, felt far more linked to Guff. And I remember that Erwin and Wendy Hirsch did a quite long Guff trip at that point, And they certainly came to stay with us in Bristol. Whereas uh, Jean's trip, I remember thinking, was quite short. And although I saw her at the convention, I wasn't really at any of the parties afterwards. And then, obviously, they went off to Scotland and Ireland, which um, kept the... Which yeah, which does. everyone does. So <laughs> mm. on the on the yeah. Irish fandom bit, I did actually feel that I finally could understand why people did that. It did feel like they had some um, quite do, did some amazing things. Um, even if you're not in love with the Enchanted Duplicator, there was obviously great hospitality and amazing scenery, and I suppose chat about old fanish times that yeah i i must admit i i was not very drawn in by the irish 
probably because I'm not very interested in the enchanted duplicator and I've nev- not, never been very excited about going to Ireland. And So what, what was interesting about this trip report to me was um, not, as you'd expect, really, comparisons between the US and the UK, but really the comparison between the UK of 1987 and the UK of 2020. Yeah. And, you know... It, it really did seem like the past is another country. And I suppose one feature which we've touched on is that UK fandom is pretty much exclusively London uh, and this history of connection to Ireland, which, of course, is not necessarily part of UK. You know, <laughs> other, other political impressions are available. Um, but, yeah, I think nowadays, just as there's more diversity there is much more awareness that you you can't really just reduce the UK to London um, and indeed to <laughs> the biggest skill people living in Ealing. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, going back to this point about using Greg as a paradigm for Britain, though, I mean, there's a bit I've quoted here um, where, she, where she, she says, oh, about American conversational habits, um, that Greg said... Woo, that's a relief. Apparently he'd been going around greeting Americans in his typically direct British manner and had been feeling a bit paranoid about the typically startled American silences prompted by his words. In other words, him being incredibly rude. Um, That is not British at all. (laughs) It's Americans who are direct. It's Britons who will be polite to a fault while actually wishing that they'd spat on you. You know, so it was just one of the many points where I did feel a bit like, you know, this was a bit like Britain being written by a Martian, which was quite weird. Um, also, the American fans in all the discussions about dinners seem to talk exclusively to, to Greg and that crowd and then to other US fans. And again, the, I think we have come on in terms of people coming over and dealing with a wider range of people from different groups and different fandoms. I'm not sure it's that different. I think there's always a kind of um, main group that people get involved with. And I think also for Americans, it's always hard to have very much time to do their trips. So it doesn't always get beyond um, quite a small group of people that they have the connections to. I just think that, I mean, this is a really positive thing, you know, that there's been this effort in recent years to get people from Europe standing for tap and guff. There's been people standing who aren't conventional fanzine fans. You know, there's people who's been media fans, podcast fans, costuming fans. And therefore, the, you know, the in-groups they're interested in are wider. And yet, you know, the, and also because of the internet, I think they've interacted with a wider bunch of people before they get I think it. that's true of um, uh, Europe to America. I'm not sure it's so true of America to Europe, to be honest. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure. But the people coming over from America now are not people I've ever heard of. I've been assuming that they, they must be from a wider range of fandoms. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, that's, that's not saying a lot as I'm, you know, very out of fandom, you know. And to be fair, the Purcells did travel all around Europe. So, yes, maybe it's a little bit more diverse than it used to be. But in terms of that directness, one thing I thought, um, which I'm sure maybe... Um, you're partly referring to is is the fact that Jean was kind of thrown by British humour, shall we call it? So she was really horrified by Greg starting his interview with her on the question of how many people she'd had to sleep with to win TAF. Yeah, and exactly. 
I think what we're what we're coming to is that there was a certain amount of culture clash, and I think there continues to be between the way British people and British fans interact with each other, and the way Americans and American fans interact with each other. And sometimes that will seem like rudeness from one side or the other. Yeah. I also thought the bits about um, Jean's run-in with Ted White over whether feminism was hijacking fandom was quite interesting. (laughs) And I particularly liked where she said that Ted suggests he should be a guest at WizCon. So So it wasn't just all Greg. (laughs) I assumed that was a joke by Ted. Maybe, Maybe. yeah. Well, I did think, I mean, reading it now in the light of, you know, 20 years of involvement with quasi-feminist ideas... um, you feel like Jean was doing her best to bend over backwards to this man who knew nothing about feminism and was talking out of his nose. But I think, again, you've got two sides. You've got Ted, who knows a lot about fandom and sees someone like Jean as as coming in with these feminist ideas but not having any understanding of the history of fandom and just putting them onto it. And you've got... Um, Jean, with who knows lots about feminism, and seeing Ted as being somebody who absolutely doesn't know anything about what she's talking about. So, well, he did. No, and <laughs> maybe she didn't know a lot about fandom. So, I think she did. I think she'd been in fandom a oh, very yeah, long she, time. She, I mean, she, she was, did. She was I thought it was interesting. <laughs> one of the the more interesting things to me was her uh, giving the background on Scott's entry into mm-hmm. fandom. That you know when he moved in with her, he had no had not experienced fandom at all, uh, and he seems to have been a very quick learner. I mean, I get on very well with with Scott and and Jean. She, I wasn't she was aware one of the leading he, fans of the time. She had practically yeah. run Wisconsin fandom. I mean, there's no way in the world she needed to be schooled in the mores of fandom by Ted White. But Wisconsin <laughs> fandom was different from other parts of American fandom, and that. What, less sexist? I'm not yeah. saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a bit like when we came into fandom, we knew nothing about previous versions of fandom and we didn't feel we needed to. That's true. I just um, think this is, this is very... This reminded me a great deal, actually, of that thing I wrote about in Floss or Gloss or whatever the hell it was called. But these, these people, that crowd, were extremely sexist. It was very much the mores of that period of the kind of 60s, 70s is that the kind of woke libertarian hippies, you know, had this big gap in their repertoire, which was that women were there to service them, you know, and this comes through all of the 60s, black civil rights, etc. I mean, this is intersectionality. I was actually reading a book about this the other day called Data Feminism, you know, and intersectionality is only really happening now, which is we can consider all these struggles, being black, being a woman, being trans, whatever, you know, whereas historically one has taken precedence over the other, you know, so the socialist struggle has taken precedence over the the, the gender struggle, the, the black struggle has taken precedence over the gender struggle. In fact, anything will take precedence That's over the That's not entirely true. Because, because women are always the bottom of the Because there was a time when the gender struggle took precedence as feminists, first wave feminists, their struggle took precedence over the race struggle, which is why a lot of them were considered to, and probably were racist. Sorry, that's a well, little bit aside. I'm actually agreeing with you. Anyway, in terms of the, the TAF trip, it's the best TAF trip I've read. I haven't read all of them. I haven't even read a lot of them, but I found it the most engaging and and 
honest or open. I think it was interesting. Would be the, my I think it was it. interesting in the sense that it was quite honest about Jean's reactions and. What makes it different from other Taft trip reports is that quite often Taft trips reports are based on mythologizing, and this one is very much a this is a blow by blow account of what she found when she came over. Yeah, and it doesn't have all this uh, um, almost fantasy world that you get in some Taft trip reports or in some convention reports, and. Um, I actually have heard Greg talk about it, and he thought it was quite dull because it doesn't it's it didn't do any of the things she promised it would do in the early parts of a report. I'm, well, I'm quite glad it didn't because I haven't read that Ursula Le Guin book, so it didn't <laughs> yeah. a lot to me. I think what I did find disconcerting though was I like the idea of it being blow by blow um, and a version of record, but every so often there was something that would pull me out of that, and I'd realise that. Jean is doing this in the 2020s. She has, to an extent, every so often interpolated something later than what than what was around at the time. I'm sure at some point she mentions Facebook, and you know there are there are bits in it that make that remind mm. you that actually this isn't a version of record. This isn't what was published in the 1987s, late 1980s. It is something that has been published now and has been edited now. So it's not a hundred percent record. I kind of felt the other way round in uh-huh. a way. I mean, I agree that there's obviously been a certain amount of self-conscious mm-hmm. editorialising. And given that, I would have found it more interesting if there had been more. I mean, a bit like, I'm not saying that it, it was wonderful, but one of the few bits of my TAF report, our TAF report that I did write up was about going to Seattle. And that was partly because I'd been back to Seattle much more recently than the notes. So I think I called it the one in future Seattle, maybe? Something like that, yeah. um, Yeah, so I was sort of saying when I wrote something about Seattle in my notes, oh, look, and I came back 10 years later or 15 years later or whatever, and I realised, you know, the monorail was really shit or something, you know. There was was some kind of updating of my uh, rather naive perceptions, Mm. and I think I would have liked more of that here, not less. So, you know, I've got a long list of things that really stuck out at me that would have been great to have had some editorialising on, like um, only being one movie to watch on the plane. <laughs> I mean, oh, my God. Like, no Google Maps, so no one can ever find anywhere. Uh, the bad food in London, well, you know, which is just not the case anymore. The repeated statement that everyone in Britain only has a tiny little... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to mention is that. that and that the whole of I the really country wondered. is owned by the the Crown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, the King, not the Queen, the King. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's more of them. There's hundreds. The Tube. The fact that everyone can avoid paying on the tube because there's apparently no electronic tickets, but nobody does. <laughs> I'm sure that wasn't true, you know. I'm sure there was loads of people. The fact that they sat in a first-class carriage from London to Brighton and no one kicked them out. <laughs> that was on page 23. And this this is glorious. I have to read this out about the... Um, yeah, this is about the London tube system. The graphics were so simple and easy to understand, the system so logical, that I wondered more about whether people often tried to evade the simple system to avoid paying by just flashing a previous day pass <laughs> instead of buying a new pass. 
But everyone assured me that people just didn't cheat, <laughs> even the one could do so. And would probably get away with it some of the time. They pointed out that extremely harsh fines deterred this. Um, and it would be lovely to see a bit of going back and thinking whether these were actually true statements at the time or whether they were, again, perhaps things that Rob or Greg said to us. Um, but the last thing, which isn't, you know, isn't so morally pejorative that I thought was amazing and I've spent weeks telling people about, is that she was so impressed by CPAPs. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> that was, and then, then someone t- told me that apparently in America, different states, most states had nothing like it, but some states had incredibly complicated CPAPs type things. So I think there was a comparison. I think, though, if... if- Gene had gone back and editorialised all of that. That would have spoiled it to an extent. So I suppose what I wish is that it had been published at the time as it was, and then there was a kind of um, a thing at the end which which did that updating. Yeah. So I suppose my last question oh. to Lillian is, now that Gene Gamal's TAF trip has come out, should we be trying to pull together <laughs> our TAF reports to make a a big all singing dancing taft trip where we can actually talk about the difference between 1988 and 2020 maybe when i <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> i think this is again one of the things i've decided during the pandemic is that i hate ebooks and mm-hmm. there's no point in buying them for 99p because i still will never read them and it will just stop me buying a copy of it that i would read in fact, the only place I find myself reading them is on trains. I can't sit down, like I couldn't sit down here and read an e-book, but on a train I, I, I find them reasonably I really, I really love them because I've got an e-book reader and it's really easy to read them, particularly, as Ian says, on a train or on holiday. But it's also quite good at night mm. if you if you need to turn the light yes. off and it's got some backlighting. I think it's hilarious watching Yvonne sitting downstairs reading a book. Then she puts the book down, goes to bed, and continues reading the book on her phone. Oh, God. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I just don't get... I mean, I don't read very many books anymore anyway, so that's mm. my problem. You know, um, like every other academic in the universe, I now barely read books. Yeah. Um, and if I do read a book, I want to enjoy it. I want to actually enjoy mm-hmm. it. And I am actually reading a book right now, a real book, and enjoying it. Whereas, you know, I've got countless e-books on my Kindle, but I just never go to read. Well, this is this is reminding me of the, the old argument about, you know, first editions versus a cheap paperback. I don't care whether something's a first edition or a paperback. It's the words that I'm interested in. So again, an e-book, it's the words. I don't care whether it's a real book or an e-book. It's not about it's... that. I just don't enjoy the format. It, it isn't like reading a book. I don't immerse. I don't immerse. I don't, I'm not in another world. It reminds me of being at work. Right. Well, that, that probably accounts for it. I don't immerse when I'm reading a book. I just get through it. Well, if it's fiction, I immerse. I mean, you have to immerse to some extent. You can't You can't be conscious the entire time that no, you're sitting on your No, I can assure you, I can be in the middle of reading a book and I'm thinking it's a really great book and I'm really enjoying it. And if you closed the book and said, what's the name of the hero? I couldn't tell you. Um, what planet are they on at the moment? Couldn't tell you. I often don't know those things. That's no, not the meaning of immersion. 
The whole point, I mean, yeah, okay. and, and very frequently when you read a book, the whole point is you've no idea what colour their hair is or even what colour their skin is often. It's just you're in their head. You're in someone's mm. head, either the okay. head of the narrator or the head of the author or the head of the character. And I'm well. never in the head of the character when I'm in an e-book. Whereas when I read them on um. my Kindle, I can immerse as much as I ever could before. But what I find, particularly notice when I'm doing book group is that I forget things like I forget who wrote the book because I never see the book when I'm reading it on the Mm. Kindle I forget what it's called I sometimes forget (laughs) the name of the characters because I can't go back and look at Mm. things as easily they're very searchable but they're not Mm. so good for flicking your way back so it it isn't quite the same they're they're very they're very no. bad educational. Yeah. I mean, there's loads of research on this. You know, your your, your eye refresh rate yeah. is bad. You're getting to the end mm. of the line is bad. You don't take in as much. It takes forever. Um, it's but this is the argument I had um, with uh, Frederica. So this is the other major thing of the recent weeks that has you know bothered me. That's worth. I don't know that I'd like to talk yeah. about. So, okay. So little musical intro. <laughs> So Federica, okay, so this is a friend of a friend. It's not really a friend of mine. Um, And I happen to have an intense conversation with her about videos. So this is kind of back where we were with TikTok, right? This is where I Mm -hmm. suddenly learned some stuff about TikTok because Federica's really, really, really into TikTok, which I don't object to. I mean, you know, I've had my time as being an early adopter, I would say. Um, What, what? I couldn't understand. Okay, so it's this debate about, you know, unquote, millennials never watch TV, which is, you know, fine. Um, But it turns out we had different meanings of what we meant by TV. (laughs) So I thought never watch TV meant never sits in a room looking at a box that's six metres away or whatever. Mm. Whereas she seemed to take it as never watching TV, that's any content that you would get free to wear on a TV, which I found really weird. So, like, she would watch Netflix, and I would go, that's TV. And she would mm. go, no, that's not TV. But she would never watch BBC. Mm. She would never watch ITV. I mean, I never watch ITV. She wouldn't watch Channel 4. Um, she wouldn't watch any programs by accident because I have this real hang-up at the moment about the loss of serendipity, the loss of browsing, both in books and in video. Like, I still quite like turning on the TV, and I know Christina's never liked this, but um, I think for my generation, that's a bit of an outlier, actually. I quite like to just have the television on or, or turn it on and just, you know, I may have an intent of doing something like watching The Crown, but quite often I'll be caught by a cooking program or an animal program or even a documentary, right? Something I probably wouldn't think about watching, something I wouldn't tape, and I'll watch it. And maybe something else will come on after it, like Gogglebox is a really good example. I would never, ever, ever tape Gogglebox or plan to watch it. But when it comes and, and on and I start you watching it, it's Christina, often quite entertaining. Christina and I are trying not to laugh at you saying you tape things. I know, I know. Well, that's, that's, that was... That was where the skewer conversation started from, yeah. actually. So I do take things. I take things on my TiVo, neither of which is correct. Um, but I, A, I like that. B, I like watching things that take half an hour an hour or, or longer, right? And basically, Federica was saying that she 
mostly watched like two minute things on TikTok and how great this was because the algorithm was so good that it knew exactly what she wanted and it would lead from thing to thing to thing. And I just couldn't think of anything worse. It sounds to me like listening to somebody making the same punchline or a different punchline. But did, did she say how many hours she spent watching two minute things? I don't know, but it sounded like quite a lot. And then, yeah. it, then it sort of segued into, but okay, you know, and she would go like, but the algorithm is so much better than YouTube. And I'd go, well, I don't watch videos on YouTube either. And then it would be, but actually you can watch TV on YouTube, right? You can watch yeah. long things because apparently now it's 35 but, minutes. But did you get, then did you have you get, to keep choosing things. I mean, what yeah. I like about free-to-air TV or even not free-to-air TV, you know, subscription TV, is you, you, you don't have to keep choosing. And if you do choose like a film or something or a series... You don't have quite as many choices to make all the time because it's a mm-hmm. film or a series, you know. Yeah. And I just can't think of anything worse. I'd rather have needles put through my eyes. But isn't she? <laughs> she's relying on the algorithm to do yeah, the choosing yeah, for she her. So she, she, both of you are avoiding choice. But the algorithm is, of course, the root of all evil. I mean, this was also at the same time. The reason we were talking is because we were both sitting around online watching the US election results. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, from her point of view, she's saying that it's, it's a help to her, oh, not yeah, a, a source of evil. Oh, yeah, she's saying it's kind of a reflection of herself. That given that hopefully we might be out of this fucking pandemic hellhole by, you know, even next summer... Are we ever going to do Zoom again? You know, uh, I imagine my feelings about it are going to change after a while because currently I feel like, no, I'm never going to do Zoom again. But I am a bit worried. A, I, I have liked seeing my friends from all over the place that I don't see enough of. So that will probably come back to me. Um, but B, I am very worried that what I actually remain liking about Akadem, which is travelling all over the place to nice countries to see friends, um, is going to disappear because the universities are going to take it as a great excuse to save money, as are the research councils. And they're going to claim it's all about the environment and they're going to make us go on doing it all on Zoom. But luckily at that point, I'll probably retire. And probably, I think they'll be kicked <laughs> back against that. I've already heard people saying that it's just not the same. And I think you're right that no. it, a lot of it will be forced onto Zoom or other online platforms. But I think there will be a holdout for people that actually need... There was a a very strong move uh, to that uh, when I was working with the Scottish Exam Board that uh, rather than pay somebody's expenses to come down from Mm. Orkney to an exam board meeting, they they would use Skype. And uh, I, I can see that... From a, a bean counter's point of view, well, of <laughs> it's the way and, to know, go. It saves money, but it's it's pretty shit for networking. It's, it's, yes, well, it, it's, it's pretty bad for bad young for academics in my field mm-hmm. who've got to network to try and get jobs, especially in the US, a bit less so in the UK probably. I mean, the, one of the interesting features about the academic use of Zoom, again, has been, I love this, and there's going to be hundreds of PhDs on it, has been, you know, the overnight practically emergence of a sort of new netiquette. So if you're on a grown-ups conversation with grown-up academics, I think there is a norm that you probably mute yourself, but you you maybe turn your camera off while someone else is leading a discussion maybe but when mm. you start to have interaction you turn mm. your camera back on and if you're going to ask a question or answer a question then yeah, you definitely, definitely turn your camera back on right but the students from what i'm told because i haven't been doing any of it this term i'm dreading next 
Apparently the students sit around with their cameras off, uh, claiming that it's because they don't have enough Wi-Fi. Or, <laughs> or enough clothes. Which may be uh-huh. true. <laughs> Enough clothes, yeah. And like Hannah, my research assistant that I was having lunch with today, was saying, yeah, you are often, and this is what I keep hearing on Twitter, so this is the first time I've heard it absolutely firsthand. Um, she's tutoring. She was saying, you've just got this rank of blackness, really, in which everyone's got the camera off, no one's replying, and they're all reading Facebook. You know, mm. and that's that's like at least three times worse than the classes I already taught for the last ten years, in but, which people aren't paying much God. attention and are reading Facebook. But if you were in a lecture theatre, they'd be doing the same. I know, but the point <laughs> is that if you're at least doing a seminar, if you're doing a seminar with ten to thirty people in it, say, and I've done all of these, you mm. can go past them and go like, "What do you think, Karen?" And if you, know, you don't yeah. know know I, anyone's names, you can still say a couple of people in the front row. I want it. I want you. One mm. of you to answer. <laughs> No, if if I'd had this technology when I was at university, I would never have gone into a lecture. Well, probably me too. But as it was, I never went to lectures. Exactly. No difference, really. I only went to the lectures. Yeah, I mean, it just meant I I had to work harder at catching up. Sorry. I only went to lectures to talk to other people, and quite a lot of students, I think, do that. It's kind of one way of feeling less isolated if you don't have loads of friends. Mm Oddly, oddly enough, I was <laughs> listening the other day um, to a random shuffle and two songs came on, one after the other. One was Burlesque by Family and the other one was uh, Not a Horse With No Name, the B-side of Horse With No Name, something everybody hears from California by America. And these were the two records that played endlessly in the coffee bar in <laughs> my first year at university. And the moment they come on, I go, oh, I'm, know, I'm back so at funny. uni. I bet everyone remembers a song like that because mine is Hong Kong Garden. <laughs> and every time it comes on, I'm back in the QA reunion in Glasgow Uni. Yeah. <laughs> Eating a cheese roll to get a, oh, to get a cheese angle. <laughs> what was oh, well. your song from early coffee <sighs> university years? Well, me. Yeah. Well... I was thinking about that, yeah. and um, it isn't really a coffee song. It's more a hall song, um, but which was uh, Chicago's "If You Leave Me Now," because oh, Julie, Julie, who uh, was further down the corridor, yeah. played it endlessly. <laughs> If You Leave Me Now by Chicago reminds me of, and this is really going to make you laugh, it reminds me of going out with Neil Craig. <laughs> <laughs> this is relentlessly obscure, and it's about as Spanish as I'm ever going to get on this podcast. Um, Neil Craig was well, the person in Bob Shaw who ran the local science fiction bookshop who I went out with, yeah. I think, after a year? I can't remember. I went. I went to. I went to school. I went to school with Neil. Did you? I didn't he was know in the that. same year as me, just in a different class. If you leave me now, to me, the moment I hear it, I think of a a foggy October, November morning, driving to work in the East End of Glasgow when I was in my first or second year of teaching. It was just, just utterly evocative of one particular <laughs> drive into work when it came on the radio. Oddly enough, in the last month, I've been learning how to play it on the piano <laughs> properly. It's a nice, it's so a nice song. It'll take me back. Reminding me of Neil it's a nice song. <laughs> yeah. I could play it for you now if you want. No, no. You could put no. it on the end of a anyway. podcast. <laughs> 
this is this is very yeah, podcasting. This is better than talking about things. A ratum coroner from Lillian, who's only just woken up and is therefore a bit croaky. Read the discussion of punctuation. Since we recorded that, I listened to the Octothorpe, the latest Octothorpe, and discovered that the reason why events were streamed to YouTube was not just for catch-up, but because apparently that was thought to be um, more accessible to some members of the convention who indeed weren't very good at dealing with Zoom and perhaps Discord. And that seems pretty sensible to me. So I amend my previous comments, although I still think that um, encouraging people to take out a YouTube account might be a good idea so that we could also reconcile that with privacy. On a less serious point, I'd just like to say that there was quite a lot of kitten-related content in this podcast to start with, but Ian cut it all out because he doesn't like kittens. Uh, And so if you want more kitten-related content, boys and girls, then write in and send us emails about it. Connectedly, I have um, uh, activated my Alexa, which has been mouldering in a corner for a long time, because I found out there's a program called Meow, where you say meow to it, and it meows back. And this has driven my kitten crazy. So I recommend that to any other kitten owners out there. And that's good night or good morning, actually, from her. And good night from Ian and Christina. Bye. Bye. Bye.